0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Arithmetic of Forgiveness and is based upon the scripture readings in the lectionary for Sunday, September 11th. Four years ago this Labor Day weekend, my son and I celebrated his start of high school by visiting New York City. We had barely returned to California and developed our pictures when on September 11th death and destruction traumatized our country like never before. The pictures we had taken of the southern tip of Manhattan from our boat ride to the Statue of Liberty, with the World Trade Buildings prominent on the skyline, had an eerie look and feel to them. One year later, when my daughter and I visited New York, we stood at that monstrosity of a construction site called Ground Zero and I wondered. What is a Christian response to those reprehensible attacks in Pennsylvania, New York, and at the Pentagon? The scriptures for this week point Christians to a one-word response, forgiveness. Peter, an impetuous disciple who, in deserting and denying even knowing Jesus, experienced his own deep need for forgiveness, once asked Jesus, How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? That sounds generous in the extreme, and I'm not sure I have ever even approximated that standard. But Jesus significantly expanded Peter's arithmetic of forgiveness. He told an outlandish parable about an unmerciful servant who received forgiveness for his own enormous debt, But then instead of extending forgiveness for a tiny debt that was owed to him, he imprisoned his debtor. In the kingdom of God that Jesus announced, he instructed us to forgive not merely seven times, but seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven, which is to say beyond calculation or even comprehension. He also warns us that obtaining forgiveness is inextricably linked to offering forgiveness. As for receiving forgiveness, Jesus established a law of proportionality. We can expect divine forgiveness in the measure that we extend human forgiveness. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Similarly, in the Lord's Prayer we pray, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our own sense for the need of forgiveness becomes the basis upon which we freely forgive others. We freely forgive because we have been forgiven, and we can only long for ourselves, what we lavish upon others. Divine forgiveness might be the easiest part. We know, at least cognitively, that God is eager to forgive. He pardons fully and freely, and he keeps no record of wrong. Hoping to receive forgiveness from someone else we have wronged is more complicated. There, our spiritual and psychological health rests, to some extent, in the other person's hands. Forgiving your own self, in my experience, can be the hardest of all. As a therapist once told me, no matter how much your friend forgives you, it will make little difference unless you learn to forgive yourself. Somehow the voices inside your head need to align themselves with the assurances from God and our neighbor that they have forgiven us. Self-imposed guilt that we cannot and will not relinquish just might be the last bastion of human pride, for it is humbling to admit that we really can be that bad. Extending forgiveness as opposed to receiving forgiveness is different. Here the numbers get crazy. Jesus asks us to forgive 77 times, which is to say in a manner wildly disproportionate to the sincerity of the penitent, or even the seriousness of their offense. Anyone who seeks serial forgiveness makes us question their motives, but Jesus says it does not matter, we still forgive them. Nor should the seriousness of the offense we have suffered compromise the genuineness of our mercy. A straightforward yet radical assurance of forgiveness, offered as Jesus says from the heart, can heal complex, painful, and egregious wrongs we have suffered or committed. Even our popular slang captures the power of pardon. Just let it go, we say. Forgiveness of this magnitude and magnanimity finds its basis not only in our own sense of need but even more sure and certain in the character of God himself as a fundamentally forgiving God. So writes Paul, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. When we forgive others, we liberate them from their sins and failures, unshackle them from the chains of anxiety, guilt, and shame, Point them toward a future of hope instead of mire them in a past of regret, and encourage them to hit the reset button and to begin afresh. In short, we grant them permission to carry on. Perhaps even more important, when we forgive others, we liberate our own selves from feelings of victimization, vengeance, and bitterness that will corrode our souls as surely as any wrong we have committed. Some of the bitterest betrayals and deepest hurts we can ever suffer occur in our own families. Such was the case in the story of Joseph for this week. Joseph's brothers were envious of their father's favoritism, so they sold him into slavery and tried to kill him. But history reversed their roles, demoting the brothers to beggars and elevating Joseph to Pharaoh's right hand in Egypt. When their fratricide was exposed and the brothers found themselves as helpless supplicants, they fully expected that it was payback time. But Joseph forgave them. Even more remarkably, Joseph believed that God had a larger providential purpose for the nation nation of Israel, beyond the private wrongs he had suffered. Don't be afraid, said Joseph. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me but God intended it for good." Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. The narrative concludes, Joseph reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's forgiveness of his brother's fratricide elucidates the double-edged truth that God can use our worst sins and failures in mysterious redemptive ways. This is a liberating minder if you need forgiveness but perhaps bitter medicine when you need to extend forgiveness. A number of Christian writers have observed this principle of radical reversal whereby God uses sin and evil for our own good. Saint Augustine, for example, wrote, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to allow no evil to exist. According to the contemporary writer Frederick Buechner, sin itself can be a means of grace Julian of Norwich, who lived in the 14th century as an English mystic who lived her whole life in total solitude, once wrote that sin will be no shame but an honor. Similarly, Anthony de Mello writes that repentance reaches fullness when you are brought to gratitude for your sins. And finally, once again, St. Augustine, who wrote, Even from my sins, God has drawn good. I can only speak for myself, and extrapolating from a personal ethic to foreign policy is both risky and complex. But as we commemorate the terrorist attacks of 9-11, I want to believe that even though a few people truly meant us great evil, God will somehow use this evil for our good. Following the gospel story of Jesus, I want to extend forgiveness to the perpetrators of the chaos and carnage. I also want to ask forgiveness from Iraqis for entangling them in our catastrophe for at best tenuous reasons, destroying their nation, commandeering their oil, killing 25,000 innocent civilians, alienating our global allies. Destabilizing the Middle East, spinning our intelligence reports to justify ideology, diverting $300 billion to violence and vengeance, claiming that God is for us and against them, and for sacrificing the precious lives of soldiers from many nations. As best as I can tell, that is the wildly disproportionate arithmetic of forgiveness taught by Jesus which I can hope to receive only in proportion to the measure that I extend it to others. And now a few questions for further reflection. Is there someone you need to forgive? Perhaps yourself or maybe a family member? What are the consequences of not forgiving? Do you find it harder to extend or to receive forgiveness? and why? Can we or even should we move from an ethic of personal forgiveness to forgiveness in foreign policy? How do you relate the gospel text of forgiveness in the story of Joseph to the 9-11 anniversary? What are the sticking points for you in extending forgiveness and receiving forgiveness? And finally, a favorite book of mine on the subject, is by Lewis Smeads entitled Forgive and Forget, Healing the Hurts We Don't Deserve. My book note for September 11th reviews the book entitled Squandered Victory the American occupation and the bungled effort to bring democracy to Iraq by Larry Diamond of Stanford. In late 2003 Condoleezza Rice telephoned her friend and Stanford colleague Larry Diamond of the Hoover Institution and asked him to go to Iraq as a senior advisor to the coalition provisional authority in Baghdad. Although he had opposed the war with Iraq, after the fact he considered it a moral imperative to do everything within our power to establish a democracy there. As an expert in democratic development around the world, both as a scholar and and as an advisor practitioner on the ground, few people are more qualified than Larry Diamond. He believed the Iraqis truly wanted democracy and were willing to work for it. He clearly has no ax to grind and no compulsion to justify or condemn. Nor did he think the task was hopeless, at least when he went. He believes our intentions as a nation were good and he is eager to give credit to the CPA and Iraqis where it is due. Diamond spent four months in Baghdad, from January to April 2004, and I think it is safe to say that few people worked harder or with more conviction, passion, enthusiasm, and sense of duty than he did. His book went to press in January 2005, right after the election results were announced. While there, he focused his efforts on two tasks. He was one of the five drafters of the interim constitution and he crisscrossed the country until it became too unsafe to do so, promoting democracy development through speeches, conferences, town hall meetings, print and news media seminars, and the like. From the start, though, the Bush plan was a long shot, according to Diamond. Imposing a democracy by force is perhaps oxymoronic, wherever you might try it. Attempting it in the Middle East, the only place in the world without a single democratic movement decreases your odds of success. The cardinal sin, according to Diamond, was the preemptive war in the first place. For this put the United States on a course of what scholars call quote, "path dependence." End quote. In other words, a trajectory was set in motion, a chain reaction of events was unleashed, and almost none of it is irreversible is reversible. A distinguished diplomat compared it to driving down a one-way street in the wrong direction. No matter what turns you make thereafter, you are making more wrong turns. That's your best-case scenario. Now compound this with what Diamond calls, quote, the staggering failures, end quote, that the Bush administration made at virtually every turn. No post-war plan to secure the peace Substantial under-resourcing in troops, equipment, and money. An artificial timetable to write a constitution, sell it to the country, and hold elections. Interagency turf warfares between government agencies, and especially between the State Department and the Pentagon. Disbanding the Iraqi army and debathification that sidelined the only people in Iraq who knew how to rule grossly underestimating Iraqi nationalism, resentment, disaffection, and suspicions of American motives, making numerous important decisions in an unapologetically autocratic and undemocratic fashion, a dismissive and flippant contempt for all criticisms, willful and arrogant delusions, wishful thinking and bad information, ostracizing the United Nations, and horrible miscalculations regarding Sistani, al-Sadr, and Fallujah. As the violent insurgency engulfed Iraq, Diamond watched much of what he and his CPA colleagues had accomplished unravel. Back in the United States, he decided not to return to Iraq. On April 26, 2004, he wrote his friend of 20 years, Condi Rice, a detailed confidential memo. He never heard back. He has concluded that the Iraqi fiasco is well on its way to becoming quote one of the major overseas blunders in U.S. history, end quote. In his sharpest critique in the entire book, Diamond charges the Bush administration with quote, negligence on a, on a monumental scale, end quote. He insists he means this not as a rhetorical flourish or verbal towel snapping, but in the technical, legal sense of, quote, "...gross or criminal negligence," end quote. It will be years, if not decades, before a final verdict on Iraq is in, so predictions are risky. Oddly enough, Diamond still hopes that democracy of some attenuated sort might work in Iraq. For that to happen, three conditions must be met. The play of politics must be inclusive enough to encompass Sunnis and Kurds who feel threatened... Related, a balance of power must ensure that no single group dominates the rest. In these first two conditions rest the contradiction between minority rights sought by the Kurds and Sunnis and majority rule sought by the Shiites. Third, Iraq's emerging politicians must evidence pragmatic flexibility as opposed to ideological rigidity. If you read the newspapers, you do not learn much at all new in Diamond's book. What makes it compelling is his unique qualifications and inspirational dedication to the task. At the end of the day, if I was an insurgent who had the least bit of doubt whether my efforts were thwarting America's ill-conceived plans, I would be greatly heartened by his first-person narrative of someone who chronicled his personal experiences up close and personal. So far we have been, quote, simply overmatched, end quote, for a post-war conflict for which we were, quote, grossly unprepared. End quote. My film review for september eleventh is of the Iraqi film called The Dreams of Sparrows. A group of Iraqi filmmakers directed by Haider Musa Dafar document life in Iraq since the fall of Saddam and the entrenchment of the American occupation. I could not detect the slightest ideological slant in this film, the gist of which is captured in the words of one person who said that he had one sentence for for Americans. Baghdad is hell, really is hell. Based upon this film, you can be sure of two truths, one, that Iraqis hated Saddam and are glad he is gone, and two, that they detest the American occupation and will be glad when we are gone. After all, observes one man, why would America be here if they did not expect to benefit? International diplomacy is not rooted in altruism. In a tragic metaphor of the situation in Iraq right now, one of the film's producers, Sa'ad Fakir, was killed when he fled Iraqis who shot at his car only to be massacred in a hail of bullets after he turned around and drove the opposite way straight into an American ambush. His friends counted 122 bullet holes in his car. This film is in Arabic with English subtitles and was released in 2004. Finally, for poetry, I have posted this week a short poem by Bikki Guatam of Nepal, entitled Tears of Blood, which commemorates the 9-11 tragedy. I closed my eyes. When I opened them, I couldn't close them again. How could I? Is humanity dead? Is peace dead? Is violence the way? Lord, have pity on us. We have let you down. We have made you cry. Fire, smoke, everywhere. And what did they get? Nothing but innocent lives and tears of blood. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net. And please join us every Monday by podcast or at our website for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.